what's going on tonight? Well, we're going to interview David here. And I think, David, your last name is Stein? That's right, Stein, S-T-E-I-N. Oh, S-T-E-I-N. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce that. David has been a, a Bible student for how many years now, David? About. I left Jehovah's Witnesses in 1975, so uh, I'm on 36 years now with the Associated Bible Students. Oh, real good. And you remind me that I met you earlier, maybe about 1980 or somewhere, was it? Yeah, uh, in fact, I believe it was 1981. It was about the time that uh, Jim Penton uh, departed the society with quite a number of folks up in Lethbridge, Alberta, uh, Canada. And uh, about six months uh, later, he had a convention. It was the first convention that they put on where they were celebrating their, their freedom in Christ. And they had quite a few uh, representatives from a number of different uh, religious perspectives that were uh, there that uh, gave presentations. And uh, I had the uh, distinct uh, privilege of traveling up there with uh, Brother Carl Hagensick and uh, meeting uh, Jim Pence and meeting you at that time. Right. I do remember that. Also, Clifford Moore was there, was he not? I believe so. Yeah, a little foggy on the details, but that, that sounds right. Right, I'm sure. Well, real good. Glad to get to reacquaint you. Re get reacquainted with you today. Really very good. So, how long have you been a witness, or were you a witness before that? Well, I became one of Jehovah's Witnesses in 1968. Uh, that was the year that I graduated high school and uh, continued on with them until uh, I left the group and was uh, subsequently disfellowshipped in 1975. All right. A good day, 1975. That's when they disfellowshipped me, September 2nd, 1975. Well, I think I had a few months. Uh, I, I believe I'm not entirely sure because I, I never got the courtesy of a letter or anything, but... I believe for me it happened uh, in early June 1975. Wow, wow. So they got us all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, well, uh, Rick, for radio, is there anything else we need to talk about before we really start now? I guess not. I guess we'll just go right ahead. Okay, okay. Welcome. Really welcome very much, David, to my program here. It's been a great program. Uh, I've been on for, for coming up two years now. Not quite as long as Rick's been on, but anyway, it's been a real good run. And what I'd like to do, David, is I'd like to have you tell us your background. Were your folks, Bible students, witnesses, were they, where did they come from to the United States? Family background in that. Can you kind of fill us in there? Okay. Um I was actually raised a Catholic. My mother was a good Irish Catholic, one of uh, the first of six children. And so my early religious uh, training was all in Catholicism. Uh, and uh, I even did the, uh, the altar boy uh, uh, service there during uh, my uh, early teen years. Uh, my dad was not very much involved uh, with the Catholicism at that time. My mom kind of took over. And I didn't find out till many years later that uh, Dad actually worked for one of Jehovah's Witnesses and had been familiar to some extent. He wasn't a witness himself, but familiar to some extent with them uh, through most of the years I was growing up. And really? Kind of wow. Yeah. <laughs> from time to time he would say things, but my, my mother was very strict, saying, you know, 
we're raising these kids Catholic, and don't you dare do anything different. So uh-huh. he, was, uh, he was a little bit coy and uh, about the way that he introduced thoughts to us from time to time. Wow. What part of the world was that in, Maven? That was in New Jersey. Uh, I was born in Plainfield, New Jersey, in 1950. And if you do the math, yeah, I'm 61. I'll be 62 next year. Uh, and we moved uh, quite early in my childhood to a little town in western, uh, northwestern New Jersey called Washington, New Jersey. And uh, that's where I lived uh, uh, until the time I left home in 1969. Wow. And you both, they came from the old country, didn't they? Or what was that? How was that? No, my uh, my great-grandmother and grandfather on my mom's side came from Ireland. My grandmother was born here and my mom was born here, but uh, I remember my uh, my uh, great-grandmother and great-grandfather very well. Uh, they spoke with that very strong Irish brogue, and uh, much of the family did, so that's on my mom's side. On my dad's side, it was the same thing again. My great-grandparents came from... Uh, the area in Europe that was uh, between Slovakia or Slovenia today and Germany. Uh, and as I understand it, the name Stein is shortened from uh, something that was a bit longer, and nobody seems to know what it is, one of those things lost in the, in the, uh, the, the, the dust of time. Uh, but uh, well, my, uh, my grandparents uh, and their, my, my great uncles and great aunts uh, all spoke uh, uh, Slovakian and Czechoslovakian. Uh, my dad did not, but uh, so uh, I am. Uh, I guess you would say I'm an I'm an Irish Slovak. Very interesting combination. <laughs> right, yeah, right, kind of right, right on. Kind of like my wife. She's part Indian. <laughs> oh, interesting. That's, that's why I don't let her get near a town arc. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, no, it's really, really very interesting. Okay, so um. Let's see now, once again, how did you get acquainted with the witnesses, on your own or what? Well, in 1967, I was a senior in high school, and uh, in our English class of all classes, we uh, were kind of interested in uh, religious thinking around the globe. And uh, our English teacher invited everyone to just bring in religious and philosophical materials for us to look through and maybe have some discussions, write some essays in. By by the time that that happened, uh, I was no longer associated with the Catholic Church. Uh, around my 10th year in high school, I got to be good friends with my biology teacher, and he was a uh, an evolutionist and an atheist, and uh, he had a lot to do with my thinking as a young man then. So I, I told my mom I wasn't going to church any anymore and was uh, kind of developing a uh, an atheistic, scientific uh, perspective on life. Wow. Of course, be, being young, I mean, you're you're impressionable about a lot of things, and and this particular uh, school teacher was was very effective teacher, and I kind of looked up to him. But by the time I got to to the senior year, I was shifting through a lot of these um, pieces of of religious material that had been in the class, and I came across a uh, Watchtower magazine, and uh, I, I looked through it and uh, read uh, at least scanned through an article or two. And the first thing that struck me is that it was quite different from the Catholic religious uh, upbringing that I had had. That was steeped in religion and in mysticism and in ritual. And uh, here was a a publication that seemed actually reasonable. It was quoting the Bible and it was uh, making some points. I had not learned very much of the Bible being raised in, in Catholic, but I know my Bible stories. 
But this this just looks so different. That, uh, oh, as a Catholic, did they tell you not to read the Bible? Or or did they tell you you couldn't read it on pain of disillusioning or what? In my experience, it was never forbidden, but it was never encouraged. It was just not a very important book in uh, in my Catholic rearing. I mean, the, the priests would would speak uh, on uh, on their sermons on Sundays, perhaps from the Gospels of the New Testament, uh, and uh, in our catechisms, we would uh, catechism classes, we would talk about old uh, uh, Old Testament stories, but it was simply not a book that was a core part of uh, of Catholicism. And uh, so as I began to read this, it, it, it kind of interested me. And I knew that my dad had had some uh, interest uh, beyond uh, uh, what I was, was aware of, just from the kind of questions and points that he had made through the years. So what I did is uh, I took uh, a couple of watchtowers home uh, from, uh, from school with me and uh, brought them into the home. And my mother saw them, and she got very, very upset about it. Uh, and it was it was a little strange reaction on her part, at least from my perspective, because it seemed very definitely to be an overreaction. My, my mother was a, was a pretty uh, a smooth and even-keeled person, and she got very, very upset about it. So later that evening when my dad got home from work, I asked him uh, about the watchtower, and, and I told him mom's reaction, and he kind of smiled, uh, and he said, well, let me show you something. And he took me back to his bedroom, and he opened up the closet, and, and took out this box that was in the back of the closet, and lo and behold, there was uh, watchtowers going all the way back to 1951. Really? And I, yeah, and I was just kind of stunned at it, because Dad had never said anything about that. And uh, I, I, I asked him about it, and he told me that his boss was a Jehovah Witness, and he's been uh, talking with them and studying through the years. To my knowledge, uh, I, I was never aware of him going to a kingdom hall, and maybe vaguely aware in retrospect that he might have gone to a summer uh, assembly or something like that. So that began a discussion between my dad and I that uh, he had been waiting to have for a long time. Uh, but uh, since I opened that can of worms and uh, asked the questions myself, uh, well, he felt free to, to talk with me about it. That was about the year 1950, you think? No, that was 1967. I was 17 years old at the time. All right, right, okay, right, right, okay. And was this still in New Jersey? Yep, still in Washington, New Jersey. So I asked him, uh, I said, well, well, where do these people meet? And he says, well, they have kingdom halls different places, and the the nearest kingdom hall to us was in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. That's uh, on the Delaware River on the extreme western side of New Jersey. And I said, well, I would like like to go. And he said, all right. So the following Sunday, he and I, we drove out to Phillipsburg, New Jersey. It was only about uh, 9 or 10 uh, miles from the house, so it wasn't, wasn't a far drive. And uh, we showed up uh, at the Kingdom Hall uh, on, a, um, on a Sunday morning. And uh, we came in. And of course, I had my tie and jacket on. Dad and I were dressed in our Sunday best. And uh, we were greeted. And, uh, there happened to be a, a number of people there that were my own age. Uh, that is to say, teenagers. Oh, hold on, hold on, David. Some static on the line here. Rick. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, all right. Can you clear that up? Yeah, we'll look at you. Right. Let, let me just uh, hold on one second. We'll clear it right up for you. All right, good. Right. You Sorry about that, David. Oh, that's no, okay. You should be clear now, Richard. All right, go ahead, David. Tell us where you were at there. Went to the right, kingdom so, hall. What happened there? 
Yeah, so this is our first trip to the Kingdom Hall in uh, around November 1967. And uh, we came in, and I sat through, and of course the normal procedure in the Kingdom Hall at that time, and, and I think it still is normal today, is that they have a, uh, a one-hour uh, discourse followed by a watchtower study. And I remember the watchtower study was on the blood issue. You know, being all the witnesses are about blood, so there was a study about that. Well, it was a completely different experience from what I had had uh, in the Catholic Church, and I was very intrigued by it, and I uh, was very impressed by the demeanor of the people there. Uh, they were they were obviously uh, um, a very, um, um, uh, what's the, I guess what's the right word, very composed and very balanced and very pleasant to, to speak to. It was also very obvious to me that they relied upon the Bible for their for their thoughts, and uh, so that was my first introduction. And I got to be uh, good friends with uh, several of the young people there that were uh, my own my own age, and uh, it wasn't too long before I was uh, swept into their theocratic ministry school and began to going to the the Tuesday night meetings and the Thursday night meetings and Sunday meetings. Um, of course, my mom was not very happy about this. And uh, we kind of had a, a little bit of a falling out, and it was exacerbated by the fact that uh, I had had a scholarship to Rutgers University to, to go to college. And as I began to study with the witnesses, they were very strong in discouraging a college education. And their rationale was, well, the Armageddon is going to come pretty soon, and they, they, many of them were mentioning 1975, even at that early time. Really? Uh, and yeah, and so I thought that well, you know, if if the end is coming here uh, seven years from uh, 1968 at that time, uh, I'm going to spend my time my my time in the full time service of uh, Jehovah. So uh, I declined the scholarship. Of course, that didn't make matters uh, make a relationship with my mom very very better there. I don't uh, ask about your dad during this period of time. When you, did he go to the hall with you after that more? Yeah, he was he was going to the call, the hall pretty regularly, but uh, you know, the, with the social connections I was making, uh, I was obviously getting much more involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, activities of the witness than than Dad was. But uh, no, he was he, he was very supportive through this. Uh, then uh, I went through their their study routine. The, the, your word is a lamp to my foot. Went through all those questions and um, qualified to uh, be immersed. And I was immersed at the uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island Convention in 1975. I don't know if Rick was there that year, but uh, that's the year that I was immersed. Uh, they had there was like 200 uh, plus uh, people immersed up in uh, North Attleboro, Massachusetts, I believe. And uh, it wasn't long after that that my dad uh, made a dedication as well, and he was immersed in uh, September uh, 1968. So uh, both of us uh, were full-fledged witnesses, and I immediately went into uh, the uh, pioneer work, was appointed a pioneer, and uh, continued to do that, uh, actually up until about uh, 1974, when uh, my wife uh, was expecting our first uh, child, and so I had to drop out and get a full-time job. So most of that time, um, I was, uh, was in the full-time work. Wow, interesting. So then you started the full-time pioneer work almost yep. after your baptism, soon after your baptism? Yeah, yeah, I, I, try, I got into it right away. 
and uh, I, I remained with the Phillipsburg, uh, New Jersey Kingdom Hall congregation uh, until September 1969. Now, living at home, I, I mentioned that I was the, the oldest of six children, and uh, we had a small house, and it was becoming increasingly obvious that I, I needed to move on. Again, my relationship with my mom had, had, was not good back in those days. And so uh, I contacted some uh, friends up in Rhode Island that I had made friendships with when I was up there in 68 and uh, moved to uh, Warwick, Rhode Island. I actually moved up there on Labor Day 1969, drove up there in my Volkswagen, and I moved in with a family uh, by the name of Kelly that uh, lived in uh, in uh, Warwick. They invited me to stay with them. And I had my assignment as a pioneer transferred uh, uh, up there. So I started up there in, uh, in 1969. Uh, uh, wow. Boy, very interesting history. Very interesting background. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, continued pioneering up there. Um, and uh, incidentally, I had, uh, the, the, in 68, I had, I had met uh, who, the, the girl that eventually became my wife. Her name was uh, Kathy Oldender. Uh, she was in the um, uh, another congregation in Pennsylvania, the Rosetta, Pennsylvania congregation, and uh, we were we developed our relationship over the next four years and were married in 1972. But a, uh, a very important part of my uh, my experience and my testimony came about um, near the end of 1970. Um, I had applied for uh, and been accepted to come to Bethel uh, in uh, late in 1970. So I left uh, the Warwick, Rhode Island class and came down to Brooklyn and joined the Bethel family and uh, was there for uh, uh, for several months. Now, unknown to me uh, during this time, again, as a young man, I'm so wrapped up with the with the uh, cultural uh, and family and and uh, uh, the service and study things that the that the witnesses lay out for you to do. Witnesses have a very busy life, and it's almost entirely focused on the organization. Um, I didn't have a lot uh, of, um, of, of contact with my dad during this time after I'd left home. Mm. And I, I came uh, to visit, uh, um, actually came to visit my girlfriend, Kathy, and, and was staying at my dad's mom and dad's house uh, probably uh, maybe a month or two uh, after I was at Bethel. And when I came there, I... I saw uh, some books on the shelf that um, I looked through, and lo and behold, it was uh, The Studies in the Scriptures by Charles Taze Russell. Oh, really? And to, yeah, and I said to myself... How did you get them? Well, uh, well, this is an interesting part of the story that I didn't find out until later. Um, you know, I asked him what he's reading that, and he, I said, that's old light. And he says, well, he says, there's some interesting thoughts in there. It turns out that after he was baptized in um, in September of 1968 and began going to the Kingdom Hall and was fully recognized as a as a witness, uh, Dad began to see some things that he was very uncomfortable with, uh, a kind of a control over your time and uh, over your thinking. Uh, a lot of it was subtle, but m my dad was a scientist. He worked at Bell Telephone Laboratories in, in Mary Hill for his whole career and could see things that were just making him uncomfortable. And uh, as time went on, he became more and more comfortable, and he started looking around. And probably in early um, 1970, maybe around the summertime of 1970, um, he uh, came across the Bible student movement and got into contact with several Bible students that lived close to him in the New Jersey area. 
and uh, ended up going to a Bible students convention that summer and started to make acquaintances and, and uh, get involved uh, in the Bible student movement. Now, this, as I say, was all unknown to me. I was living up in uh, Rhode Island at the time, the happy-go-lucky. Again, during those years, I was a witness. I was very happy. There was I didn't have any problems. It, it met my, my social and religious and philosophical needs uh, very, very well. And, and that's not surprising for a young man. You know, I wasn't very much of a critical th- thinker at that time. I just was accepting uh, what, was, uh, what was being taught. So when I saw these things uh, that Dad was reading, I got a little worried. Uh, and uh, so I think probably the next day, that would have been a Saturday afternoon on Sunday, uh, at the Kingdom Hall in Phillipsburg, I, I told the elders, I said, you know, my dad's reading some some of this stuff, and, uh, you know, I, I would not like to see him get too confused. You might want to schedule a visit and help him out a little bit. They said they would do that. And then I, it just left my mind. Uh, again, I was there to see my girlfriend, not to, not to visit or debate with dad. Right. So... So, uh, you know, I headed back to uh, to Bethel, and I was back a couple of weeks, and uh, someone contacted me and told me that my dad had been disfellowshipped. And I, really? I, was, I was stunned. I said, what? You know, I couldn't believe it. And you know that being a witness, uh, being disfellowshipped, that's the kiss of death. That's, that's the worst thing that you can imagine. So I started thinking. I said, gosh, did, did, is it something that I did when I asked the elders to go over there? Am I responsible for my, my dad possibly going into second death? And so uh, I made arrangements now to uh, come and to, uh, to talk to dad. Now, I knew that the rule was that you're not supposed to have any spiritual fellowship with those that are disfellowshipped. I understood that. I was a Bethelite. I understood. But this is my father. And, you know, I, I had to bend the rules a little bit to, to save him from what I perceived was a, was a terrible fate. So... Uh, I went to visit him uh, on a weekend, and I spent the, the whole weekend with him, and, and he was talking about all these things. And, and uh, as, he's, as he's explaining things, he's also talking about a brother by the name of Fry, Brother Fry. He kept talking about this Brother Fry. And I was very annoyed about that and, and began to get the perspective that, well, this, this Brother Fry, he, he's responsible for turning my dad's mind. You know, maybe if I could straighten this Brother Fry out, you know, i get my dad back. So I said, well, where does he live? He says, well, he lives in Staten Island. I said, well, that's great. I live in Brooklyn. I'll tell you what, next Saturday, now in Bethel, we worked on Saturday mornings, and we didn't get, get off until the afternoon. I said, uh, I'll be, I'm going over to, to, to this Fry's house. I said, you be there, and uh, you know, we'll meet at a certain time, and, and uh, we'll, we'll get through this. So that following Saturday, I took the ferry boat over to uh, Staten Island and took the train to the area where, where this Fry lived and uh, found his house, knocked on his door, and this little old man opens the door, and I said, are you Mr. Fry? And he says, yes, you must be David. Come on in. We're expecting you. Huh. Mr. Fry at that time was had to be in his 70s. Uh, I, I, I haven't calculated out exactly right. But I did not know at that moment that I was speaking to somebody that had made a consecration, a dedication of his life to uh, the Heavenly Father in 1914. So this is this is uh, 1971-1914. You do the math. He'd he'd been a Bible student for for literally decades. Um, so we sat down, and of course I was well prepared. I was going to uh, start to hammer this guy because I wanted to get Dad back. And uh, as I as I started to, to give him my witness arguments, and I don't remember. I know we talked about the Great Company. We talked about Israel. We talked about a number of things. Uh, all the details have been lost in time, but uh, 
I, I would make a make a point. I thought it was a great point, and uh, Brother Fry would let me go on, and, and then he would say, "Well, David, that's not so very nice. I like the way you use the scriptures, but what do you do with the scripture over there, over here?" And he'd throw a, a problem text at me, and uh, I I was finding myself like I couldn't answer the question. So we would go on to something else, and again, I would rush rush up my my very best uh, witness arguments, and uh, he would just turn it back with a few questionings. He didn't tell me anything. All he did was ask questions, and he was tying me up in knots. And I was getting more and more frustrated. I had the truth. I was one of Jehovah's Witnesses. How, how could this old man <laughs> do this? And, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a, a, a feeling of bewilderment about the whole thing. This wasn't supposed to happen. Um, anyway, this went on for, uh, for probably a couple hours, two and a half hours perhaps. And then Brother Fry said, well, let me share a few thoughts with you. And he began to uh, to talk to me. And I, and I will tell you, at that point in time, I still was very close-minded. I was bewildered and confused that I that I couldn't uh, make my points. And could I could answer all the questions. David, could you give yeah. us an example or two of those type of things that he was asking you about? Well, I, you know, I, I think one, we, we talked about Israel, you know, and of course the, the, the witnesses would view... Um, uh, themselves in many of the Old Testament scriptures that talk about Israel being blessed. And uh, he would throw a, a scripture at me. Uh, oh, let's see. I think uh, I think in Romans chapter 11. And again, this is going back. But uh, Romans 11, verse 28 and verse 27, speaking about Israel. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So Brother Fry would say, doesn't that seem to indicate that, that Israel is beloved in, in spite of uh, uh, there being an enemy status? Well, questions like that, witnesses are, are just not prepared uh, to answer. Or when we were talking about uh, about the great company, um, I think he, if I remember again, he, he turned me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, where Paul is talking about uh, man's work in starting in verse 13. He says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, and shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath uh, built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. And so he would throw these scriptures at me, and these are not texts that the witnesses have spent a lot of time, and I, I didn't have an answer. Uh, there were many more, uh, Brother Richard, but uh, I, I don't remember the details. All I remember very strongly is the emotion. Um, right. As a witness, you know, especially as a Bethelite, when you go to Bethel, they have what they call Bethel School, and it's a primary school where you've got to do homework and you study. So I, I knew the witness doctrines very well, and you know I would say probably there was a little bit of pride in in my heart as well, and I was used to winning arguments. I was used to making my point, and not being able to do this in this little old man in this little old town in Staten Island somewhere, it just it just didn't add up. But right. I, I was I was intrigued. Never never. Thank learned. you, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know being intrigued. Um, there was a problem here, and I didn't know it was my problem or what the problem was, but uh, I, I needed to, to pursue this a little bit more. So, uh, again, I was very close-minded. I wasn't listening to uh, to him too well by the end of the evening, uh, and it was very emotional for me. 
Uh, but I said, well, can I come back next Saturday? He said, sure, you're welcome. So next Saturday I came back. Was and there then? Uh, what's that? Did your father come more than one time? No, no. Dad just came the first time, and and after that it was just me coming uh, coming to visit. All this took place in April of 1971. So I was there three or four Saturdays in a row. And uh, the, the more I listened to Brother Fry, the more I was impressed with his knowledge of the Bible. And again, I, I was fighting against a lot of closed-mindedness, but one thing started to come through, that the, the atoning death of Jesus seemed to be applicable to a lot more people than just Jehovah's Witnesses. As you know and know very well, uh, the Witnesses uh, have the perspective that the only way that you are going to enter into the new world is if you are a dedicated and baptized witness. Now, that's what we believed back then. I don't know if they made any adjustments here so many years later, but that was it. And uh, in listening to Brother Fry and looking at the scriptures on, on the ransom, and I mean, just a simple one, like Jesus tasted death for every man. Uh, you know, you throw that at a witness and say, well, you're saying that he only tasted death for you. And, of course, they have to come up with some spin to try to explain it. Well, this this was really the only point that was start, starting to uh, sink through a little bit. And I really liked it because as a Jehovah Witness, especially as a pioneer, I would speak to uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, in, in a year. And you would very frequently meet these people who were Christians. They might be Baptists or or Presbyterians or whatever. They, they were believers. They believed in the Bible. They led uh, lives that were in, in moral obedience to the, to the code of behavior. They loved the Lord. They would be willing to give the shirt off their backs. And you're standing at their front door with a watchtower, and they don't want to hear it. Now, your, your religious philosophy or your religious belief says, well, God's going to destroy them. And I remember just being kind of confused about that, saying, well, how can Jehovah destroy these people just because of ignorance? These are good people. I mean, it's not like they're bad people or incorrigible. They just don't have the same view. And I remember so many times asking elders about it, and they would say, well, Brother David, you know that Jehovah is a perfect judge and his, his judgment is right, so he'll do the right thing. Just, just don't worry about it. They never really gave me an intelligent answer back. They just said, well, you know, be happy. <laughs> Don't worry about it. So that was one of the things that was, that was hanging in my mind at the time I began to, uh, to meet Brother Fry. And that's one of the reasons why this doctrine of Jesus dying a ransom for all found lodging in my heart. Now, during this time when I was at Bethel, and let me just say that prior to this, I absolutely loved being at Bethel. I loved the work that I did. I felt here I was at the core of Jehovah's organization. Uh, and for the most part, there were people there that were good and upstanding and very moral and working hard. I mean, there were problems at Bethel when I was there. I mean, sometimes the young people, young, young men there would have parties, and then there was an occasional drinking uh, that was involved. So you would hear about people getting kicked out. But by and large, uh, I found most of the people there to be very godly and, and enjoyed it very much. Right. So um, I used to write a letter to uh, my girlfriend, Kathy, my present wife, and let her know what was going on at Bethel, life at Bethel, and things like that. And, and then there'd be some boyfriend-girlfriend stuff. And uh, she used to read the letters to her mother, you know, skipping the boyfriend and girlfriend stuff, of course. <laughs> but 
but about what's going on at Bethel and what Jehovah's Organization is doing. And uh, I wrote her one letter, and, and I told her about uh, learning something about the Bible students from back in Brother Russell's time, that they believed that uh, Jesus died for all and that all mankind will have some benefit of the ransom to help them to walk up the way of holiness, the highway of holiness. And to have ask you a question about that. Mm-hmm. In regard to that, did they highlight the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac and Jacob, about all families there is being blessed by the seed? Was that a part of the view they had then? Well, it was a part of the Bible students' view, indeed. And, and in fact, when Brother Fry would, would quote that scripture and many other scriptures, I, I began to see this word all, like all families of the earth, in a completely different light. Certainly the witnesses didn't have a perspective like that. So, you know, I wrote this one letter to uh, Kathy, and I said, you know, it may be that there's a lot more people, the whole world's coming back, and we didn't, we didn't think that. Well, as it happened, while she was reading the letter to her mother, she got to that, that part. She hadn't read the letter ahead of time. And uh, immediately she said later that her, her mother, there was a, her countenance changed because being a uh, faithful and true Jehovah Witness, she immediately recognized that this was not sound witness doctrine. This was something different. So she wanted the letter, but uh, Kathy said uh, didn't want to give it to her. So Kathy hid the letter, but her mother found the letter. Now, now this is where it really gets interesting, Brother Richard, when you, when you follow this. She found the letter. She gave it to the presiding overseer at the Rosetto, uh, Pennsylvania Kingdom Hall. Um, he happens to be he happened to be friends with much of the management, the upper management in brass there at the Watchtower. And so he brought the Watchtower to New York, and my letter came into the hands of the president of the Watchtower Society, Nathan Moore. Wow. All of this unknown to me. I, ha- I didn't have a clue that all this was going on. So um, near the end of April 1971, it was a Friday. I remember it very well. I was working on the printing press. I was a bundler. And uh, someone said uh, that uh, Brother Max Larson would like to see me up in his office. Now, I thought that was a little odd, you know, why Max would, would like to see me. But I thought about it, and, and I had shared some things with my roommate uh, at Bethel, uh, a, a young fellow from Detroit whose name was Ward Walton. Uh, i meaning to look him up someday when I'm in Detroit. I don't know if he's still a witness or not, but uh, he was my roommate there. And I thought, well, maybe he had said something and uh, and had gotten it back that way. So uh, up to uh, Max Larson's office uh, I went. And uh, I, I understand he's the president of the society now. Is that correct? I believe that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, anyway, uh, up there, I, I went into his office. He asked me to sit down, and he was doing a couple of other things and uh, on the phone, and uh, then he finished up, and he called his secretary to come in, and his secretary was another young Bethelite young man. Uh, he came in, and, and he sat down in the chair next to Brother Larson and just folded his arms. And Brother Larson said to me, he says, Brother Stein, have you ever taken a position, a doctrinal position, contrary to the society in any matter? And I was kind of stunned at the question. Uh, and I said, well, no, I hadn't. I, to my knowledge, I hadn't taken a position. He said, okay. He says, well, I want you to go downstairs and get changed. We need to uh, walk over to uh, the Bethlehem. So I did, and he and I walked over, and we made small talk. And he brought me over and put me in a conference room. And uh, 
Then uh, he came back with two other brethren. Um, one of the brethren's brother Smith, I think was his name, he was in charge of pioneers. And the other brother was brother Ed Dunlap, who uh, also came in and sat down. And uh, they opened with prayer, and they began to question me. And I, I realized that this was a judicial committee. Uh, for those of you that are listening, uh, that are witnesses, you know what judicial committees are. There are three elders that, that are there to, to uh, resolve and investigate a matter and come up with a judgment on it. So uh, I was on the hot seat, and I kind of knew it and didn't really understand all that was going on. So in the first hour, they asked me questions about what I believed, and it was mostly witness stuff. Um, they asked me about my dad, and I admitted that I had been talking to my dad and explained to them I just didn't want my dad to go into second death and understood uh, that, uh, that I was breaking the rules, but uh, I felt that my love for my dad and hopes for him uh, were more important. And they'd always come back and say, well, what do you believe about this and believe about that? I told them about going over and seeing Brother Fry, and, and um, I didn't call him Brother at the time, but, but uh, going over to see this Fry character who was a Bible student. and Learn to help your dad. Yeah, exactly. And, they, they, and again, they kept, kept, well, what do you believe? You know, and, and I, you know, I gave basically the, the, the answer or a noncommittal answer. So after about an hour, Brother Richard, um, Brother Larson uh, reaches into his jacket pocket, and he says, Brother Stein, we'd like to read you something. And uh, they started reading this piece of paper, and lo and behold, it was my letter to my girlfriend. And they read the portion that I had written about what Bible students believed. And uh, it, it, when they read what I had written, it seemed like I had indeed taken that, a position. It was much stronger than, than I remembered writing it. I mean, it looked like I was lying about it. Uh, but... Uh, the shock of this, I can't describe to you the, the emotional impact. I mean, I I was uh, just turned 21, and it was like black magic. How could they get my, my personal letter to my girlfriend? Right. I broke down in tears. I mean, I, 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 lost, I lost all control. I just, I just was very emotionally distraught about this. And the meeting went on. They, they started asking me some other questions. And they started laying into me and saying, well, look, you know, the reason why we have the rule about not talking to disfellowship persons is for this various thing, that you can be unduly influenced. And they started going through some scriptures to, uh, from their perspective uh, to deny or to um, give their perspective about only witnesses coming back and things like that. And again, I, I was in no position to argue or to think. I mean, I just was emotionally distraught, still wiping tears away, and scared. I was scared out of my out of my shoes over this whole thing. The conclusion of the matter is, they say, "Well, Brother Stein, we we, we think that you just made a, a, a terrible mistake. We're not going to disfellowship you. Uh, your dad is the cause of all your problems. Uh, you shouldn't have done that." He says, "But we cannot have we cannot tolerate this type of behavior at Bethel." And uh, you have to uh, you have to leave immediately. You're you're no longer welcome here. So with that, I got the boot out of uh, out of Bethel. And they said, Well, where are you going to go? So well, I go home. I don't have any other place else to go. So oh, no, your your dad was a problem. We don't recommend you go back there. In fact, we recommend you have no further contact with him. We see you were pioneering in Rhode Island. Do you have any friends up there? And I said, Yeah, my best friend and his wife are up there. He said, Well, give them a call and says we think you should go back up there. So I did what I was told. Their, their meeting was very effective in creating fear and, and scaring me big time, um, and that's all they wanted to do, and, and that's what they did. So I went back up to Rhode Island with my tail between my legs, 
Uh, and uh, one of the things that I found truly wonderful is that the brothers and sisters in the Warwick class at that time, uh, they welcomed me back with open arms. There was no recriminations. There was no uh, putting me down for having done that. They were just happy to have me back. And I thought at that time, oh, this must be Jehovah's organization. There's so much love there. And, and you know, Brother Richard, that, that's not true with all congregations of Jehovah's Witnesses. Some uh, are, are a very wonderful place where the people really have deep and abiding and loyal affection one for another. There are other congregations that I've seen that are backbiting and they spy and there's, there's all kinds of friction. So uh, you really do get a, get a variety. So oh, did the congregation there where you went back to, did they know the whole story? Did you tell them the whole story or what? Well, with one of the elders that I was particularly um, uh, attached to, uh, his, his name was Benjamin Brayton. Uh, he, was, he was really a very fatherly figure uh, to me, uh, probably in his late 40s at that time. Um, I, I told him everything, and uh, he, was, he counseled me and was very, very kind about it. And, in fact, later he ended up uh, performing the wedding for, uh, for Kathy and I. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Here's the thing. Uh, you know, in coming back, um, I wanted to get back in the pioneer work right away, but uh, they had put me on probation uh, because of these doctrinal reasons. And when you're on probation, you can't be appointed a pioneer. And I was kind of crushed on that. But then I thought, well, look, I don't need an appointment to do the pioneer work. So I continued in the full time service, even without the appointment for that for that year. Uh, and then a year later, uh, I was uh, I was taken off and, and all was well. One of the real trials, uh, difficulties for me during that year is that uh, Kathy's mom had said that you cannot have any more contact with her until you're in good standing with the congregation. So uh, basically, my contact with my girlfriend was uh, was cut off for a year. Well, that wow. brings us to, to 1972. Now, um, did your your mother-in-law then tell you she had given that to the Watchtower, your letter to the Watchtower? Oh, no, no, I didn't find that out un until a, a whole other year later. Uh, you know, that was still a mystery because nobody would tell me anything. You know, and I, I was wondering, well, did, did my girlfriend turn me in? I didn't know. I didn't think so. But I didn't find out till a year later how, uh, how that letter had made its way. So it was, uh, it was another burden, <laughs> burden on, my, uh, on my neck during, those years, or during that year as well. Wow. Well, anyway, in, in 1972... Um, my best friend and his wife, uh, they had moved down to Arkansas to pioneer down there. And he had opened up a, uh, a body and paint shop uh, working at part-time. And so, why don't you come down? We'll do business together, and we can run the shop, and both of us can pioneer. And I said, okay. So I went down to Arkansas in the summer of 72 and liked what I saw. And there was definitely a need for those in the pioneer work. So I gave a tentative commitment that I would do that, but I needed to go back and, and find out if I still had a relationship with Kathy. Well, I did that in, 1970, in the summer of 1972, and she seemed very happy to, to see me, and I certainly was happy to see her. And uh, we ended up getting engaged. Uh, we got married in Rhode Island in uh, November of 1972. In fact, November 11th. Yesterday was our 36th anniversary. Excuse me. Um, and... Uh, so we got married, and we moved down to, to Arkansas, and uh, we were pioneering down there. We were actually in a kingdom hall in, in Westville, Oklahoma, which is right on the border of Arkansas and Oklahoma. And, and that is the uh, congregation to which my, my pioneering appointment was transferred. So she and I pioneered for, uh, for about three years. 
uh, actually a little less than that, about two years, we had moved up north to another congregation in Gravett, Arkansas. Uh, and um, around uh, late in 1974, uh, we found Kathy was pregnant, and so I left the pioneer work and got a full-time job now, expecting uh, now the beginnings of our family to come along. Well, this brings us to early 1975. Uh, in 1974, the uh, assemblies that uh, were conducted at that time had released a new book. And uh, I can't remember the name of the book now. It had a red cover. But what was interesting about this new book is that it had an illustration early in the book of the Chart of the Ages. And the Chart of the Ages was a chart that Brother Russell used in pu and published in the first volume of Studies in the Scripture. And that book began to be studied at, in uh, January 1975. As you know, the custom of the witnesses, I assume it's still the same, they, they release a uh, study book in the summer, and uh, then you begin the studying of that at the uh, new year. Well, that's the way it was done when I was there. So when we got that to uh, that illustration, I kind of remembered the illustration uh, of that chart from being in uh, Brother Fry's house in Staten Island four years earlier. So I went into the Kingdom Hall Library, and uh, to my surprise, uh, I found that they had uh, the studies in the scriptures there. They had the six <clears> volumes that were published in Brother Russell's life, and also the seventh that was published after his, his death. Settling in. Let me read another chapter. So I read a chapter on ransom and restitution, and then I read another chapter and another chapter. And uh, in about six weeks, I had read all seven volumes, and... Long before I finished it, I felt that uh, the witnesses were wrong in a lot of things, and this was this was right. This was more closely biblical. Now, my wife is watching this with growing concern. She she knows exactly what happened four years earlier, and she's getting very worried about me now, uh, looking into these things. If I would ask questions, and I would tell her things. So she said, well, why don't you talk to the elders? And I said, well, that's fine. Uh, so we invited one of the elders, one of the younger elders that was closer to my age, over for supper one night. And after supper, we sat down, and I started asking him some questions of things that I had been reading in, in the studies in the scriptures. And like me four years uh, earlier, he wasn't able to answer the questions and found, found them a little, little disturbing, a little concerning. And then he said, well, why don't we, why don't we have all of the elders uh, get together on this? And Kathy liked, liked that idea because... Again, she wanted the elders to straighten me out so that there wouldn't be any, any, any difficulties. By the way, Brother Richard, just as an aside, Kathy was raised one of Jehovah's Witnesses. When her mom was, uh, was expecting her is when she first had contact with Jehovah's Witnesses in the early 1950s. So all that Kathy ever knew was, was the uh, world society. She was raised under it. So she's, uh, she's watching me start to question things and is getting more and more concerned. So the day came. It was a Wednesday. We had all six elders uh, in uh, the Gravit, uh, Arkansas class, uh, or congregation I was with at the time. And Kathy was there. And we had a newborn son uh, that was uh, that was probably a couple months old. This, this would have been, I'm guessing, around uh, uh, early May of 1975. And... I started asking questions about different things, and predictably, the, the witnesses didn't have the answers. Now, remember, I was at Bethel. I, I knew the witness doctrine inside and out. I knew it very well. And so I, I guess you could say that the deck was stacked in my favor a little bit because I knew what questions they would have, they would have trouble with. And uh, 
so they began to get kind of upset. Now, the elders at that time, the six elders, there were three older elders that were retired and three younger elders that uh, were still in the workforce. One, one was in his early 30s, two were in the 40s, and, and um, the rest were in their 60s and 70s. And uh, curiously, it was the older elders that were getting more and more upset with me. Uh, really? To them, and I, again, most of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, can understand this, to them, questioning the society uh, is tantamount to disloyalty to Jehovah. So that's the mindset, and that's why they were getting upset. Well, at one point, the presiding overseer, he got so upset with something I, I said. He was up out of his chair, and he was he was trying he was going to come across the table and throttle me. And the other guy, and they grabbed him and put him in a seat, you know, and said, "Oh no, let's let's try to talk this out." But I I just want to emphasize how angry uh, what I was uh, the questions I was asking was getting, and I was not taking a stand or making statements. I was just saying, well, what, is, what do you think about this scripture? Doesn't the scripture seem to say something like this? What do you think? And uh, they were getting upset. Our meeting started like at about 5 o'clock on a Wednesday evening, and, and we'd gone four hours to 9 o'clock, and Kathy had to take our son home, and we went another another three hours after that. So I, I was in this meeting with these brethren for, for, for seven hours. And uh, at, at the end of it, it became very obvious that uh, they couldn't answer questions. And uh, so they, they took me home. You know, I remember um, probably... Wait a minute, when you say they, they took me home, you mean your wife didn't take you home, they did yep. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she left three hours earlier at 9 o'clock. And, oh, uh, she did stayed, Yeah, yeah, I stayed with the uh, with the uh, with their yeah. courtesy that they would run me home when the meeting was over, and so uh, so one of the elders did. Uh, you know, during that time, and I don't remember if it was just before or just after, we had a visit from a circuit overseer. And I was asking the circuit overseer about the New World Translation, which occurs several times, where the word all in the King James uh, is rendered all sorts of in, uh, in the New World Translation. And I had looked uh, up the meaning of that word in, in uh, the concordance and whatnot. It just didn't seem like all sorts of was, was a very good rendering of the Greek word there. I think the pantos means all. And I was asking, I was talking to a circuit overseer about it. And he wouldn't even look me in the eye. He was cleaning his fingernails while I while I was talking with him, just very nonchalantly. And I was trying to to, to ask him to see well, what he thought about it. He said, "Well, I don't have a problem." He said, "Whatever whatever the governing body wants to do is fine with me." I said, "Well, don't don't you see that there's a problem?" He said, "Well, if you think there's a problem, you write to them." So uh, how's that for a shepherd? I mean, there was no interest in in entertaining or dialoguing on my question at all. He said, "You've got a problem? Talk to somebody else." And my wife, Kathy, was so upset. She said, did you see it? He was doing his fingernails. He, was, he wasn't paying any attention to you at all. So, you know, that's kind of the reaction that, that you often get from, from witnesses when you start to challenge them. And, you know, you, I, I want to be merciful and kind to them. Uh, they believe that unless they remain witnesses, they're going to go into second death. So any challenge, especially ones, one that holds a little water or is, is truly challenging, is kind of scary to most witnesses. They don't want to even entertain the possibility that they might not be right because it's emotionally unsettling to them. Well, anyway, um, see if I can bring the story here a little bit to, to, a, to a close. I'm leaving out a lot of detail, but you know, perhaps there's a questions about it. Uh, about a week or so after that elders' meeting, uh, they asked me um, to come down to the Kingdom Hall to answer a charge of apostasy. They called me on the phone. Really? And I... Yeah, and I—I I, I mean, I they didn't it. write you a letter; they just called you. 
Yeah, they called me and said, you have to come down and answer these charges. And I said, brothers, I said, I, you do what you need to do. I'm not coming down. Well, you have to come down. Well, I'm not coming down. That's it. So they, 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 they huddled, and they said, well, can we, can we come up to your house? And I said, yeah, you're welcome in my house anytime. So up to, up to the house they come. There's three of them this time. The presiding overseer, you know, he's the guy that tried to throttle me in the meeting. Uh, he is the, the chairman of the, the three. And the other two elders were the, the younger elders that were much more composed, uh, actually friends of mine. And so they sat down in my living room, and we opened with prayer. And immediately the presiding elder, he says, what do you believe about this? You know, very, very forcefully. Well, I, I knew what was going on here, and I wanted to make a point. Every time they asked me what I believed, I said, I believe what's, what the scriptures say here, and I would quote a scripture. I, I didn't give my own opinion or my own answer on any question. They'd say, what do you believe? I said, here's what I believe, and I, I quoted a scripture. I figured they couldn't find fault with that, and they couldn't, and, and he began to get upset with me because all he was looking for was for me to say something contrary to the society. They'd had their evidence, and it would be done. And right. I didn't give him that didn't give him that pleasure. So this went on about 25, 30 minutes. And uh, my wife, by the way, who is not at all convinced that I'm right doctrinally, she she defended me very nicely because, you know, she saw how those elders treated me when I got home that night from the from the long meeting. She says, I can't believe how they treated you. I, she just was was stunned. She went in there figuring that they'd straighten me out, and instead, she witnessed abuse. And I, I think that that that. Uh, the Heavenly Father overruled providentially so that she would see that. So she was she was very supportive of me, even though she was not at all convinced that I was right. And and I thank uh, I thank the Father that I didn't have to deal with a with an opposed wife. I know that many witnesses who have gone through that uh, it's a very very difficult experience. I'm 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 happy that I was spared that. Well, anyway, after after about 30 minutes, they couldn't get uh, anything on me. Finally. Uh, the presiding overseer stood up. He says, "He says, do you believe that the Watchtower Society is Jehovah God's only channel of truth in the world today?" And I said, "No, I, I couldn't give a scripture for that." He said, okay, that's all. We, that's all we needed here. So he he, he slammed his uh, briefcase shut, went over to my door, made a dramatic show of wiping his feet on my mat, and went out to the car. The other two brothers they got up and they actually had tears in their eyes. And they said, Brother David, we're, you know, we're, we're really sorry about this. Uh, you know, we're going to be forced to, to vote for disfellowshipping. We, we know what's coming on. And I said to them, I said, I said, look, guys, I said, why are you upset if you think that's God's will? And, of course, they shifted a little bit uncomfortable. I said, you don't think it's God's will, do you? You have, you have a serious doubt about that. And I said, that's okay, because I don't think it is God's will. But you do what you need to do. I, I bear you no malice. Uh, I just... Uh, want you to, to leave the house here knowing that uh, I have a scriptural basis for what I'm saying. And they shook their heads and they shook my hand and uh, we parted very positively. And that was it. That was my, uh, uh, it wasn't my last, but uh, I thought it was going to be my last contact. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier in the program, Brother Richard, I never received a letter. I never received a phone call. They disfellowshipped me and I, I never received any formal notification on it. Did you ever think of recording that? You know, it, this is 1975. I mean, I did have a cassette tape player, but, uh, you know, I'm not that smart. I, I probably should have. <laughs> actually, actually, what happened to me at that same time was 
I had a great big recorder, and I recorded the whole thing. Did you? Wow. That's a, that's a historical piece there. <laughs> oh, no, it's even better than that. On the field, I said they said certain things because I could play back and type them off. And they denied it. All five of the elders denied it over and over and over again. And I, the society said I could not play a recording. <laughs> but anyway, I had it typed off, and the appeal committee had pieces and paper in their hands, and they, they must have lied. Oh, maybe 50 times, five of them, 10 times each. The next meeting, I had the recording uh, recorded on my little recorder, part of it. And the first thing in the meeting, I took my that little recorder out of me, pressed the button, and here they were saying exactly what they had denied many, many times over and over again. Wow. <laughs> and wow. so they feel they seen they were absolute liars, absolute liars. And they were using my wife and I of lying. <laughs> and boy, did that seal the deal. That really sealed it for me, for them. Yeah, well, yeah, you were too dangerous to leave there. They had to get rid of you one way or the other. You know, and that's, that's part of the problem. When you are convinced, or when one is convinced that he's absolutely right and there's no chance of being wrong, uh, now you can start to bend the, the, uh, the lines of uh, ethical behavior. You know, the, the old uh, saying, uh, the ends justifies the means? You know, if you're defending Jehovah's organization, then, well, what's a little lie uh, or even a big lie if you're defending Jehovah's organization? You can see how that mindset kind of perverts the thinking and the behavior of some. Yeah, it's very, very true. I'm glad you brought that up. That's really very true, yes. Yeah. Oh, so, and the uh, two younger elders hold against disillusioning you or not? Uh, could you say that again, Brother Richard? I'm sorry. The one elder was very much opposed to you. Or the yes. two other elders, did they vote to retain you or to disfellowship you? Oh, no, they, they voted to disfellowship me. And, again, you have to understand that uh, now their, their necks are on the line. You know, if they're going to go against uh, what the presiding uh, elder wanted, well, you never know what that's going to lead to. And their whole families were in Jehovah's Witnesses and whatnot. So, uh, uh, actually, all they needed was that. This is Joe. Hi, Joe. Uh, I'm in the metropolitan Kansas City. Um, oh, we're sorry for you, Joe. <laughs> okay. Um, John 316, uh, let, me, let me look at this. And, uh, okay, this is on the universal salvation. Uh, it says, in order that everyone exercising faith in Christ might not be destroyed. Now, I realize there's many, many scriptures that speak about all being saved, you know, on that order. But when I read John 3.16, which says, God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son, so anyone, no, so that everyone exercising faith in him. But the thing is, not everybody does exercise faith in him. And then it says, might not be destroyed. So some are destroyed. Some also blaspheme against the uh, Holy Spirit. And uh, so uh, it's it's not a totally universal thing so far as I can see. But the, the, the deal is a lot of the uh, different churches uh, believe that you have to be baptized as a Christian 
or to at least have accepted Christ in 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 the course of a lifetime in order to to be resurrected. Now, I'm not uh, disagreeing with, with with yourself or the idea of uh, universal salvation. I'm just trying to to get clear on this. How do you how do you explain this? Okay, a very good question. There is a distinction that I think should be made between universal salvation and universal redemption. I do not believe in universal salvation. I believe that the wicked will be destroyed in God's due time. So that's quite contrary to those that believe that God is going to save everybody. But what I do believe is what the Bible say about the efficacy of Jesus' death, that he tasted death for every man. Every person who has ever lived, near as I can see in the scriptures, is going to have an opportunity to exercise faith. That's the point you made, Joe, and a very important Ultimately, to gain life, it will be necessary to exercise faith. The problem with the world is that they haven't been taught the knowledge and don't know how to do that. That's been true for okay. 6,000 years. Is the idea, then, that in this lifetime, or someone who died before Christ even came uh, came came to the world, although that person didn't exercise faith in Christ because they didn't even know anything about him. But after they are uh, okay, that they would receive a resurrection and get a second chance, and in that uh, in that time period, learn about Christ. And that's uh, so that this would also be fulfilled. It would then be among the everyone exercising faith in him, provided that, of course, at resurrection uh, in their second life, they did accept Christ. But if during that second resurrection, they deliberately, despite all the... uh, convincing evidence and everything, they still rejected Christ, then that might be the, to me, mysterious um, blaspheming against Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it isn't. I don't know. There's a a scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that I think is very insightful uh, in this regard. It kind of uh, addresses your your question uh, nicely. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 3, uh, Paul writes here, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, there are several things in this in this text that I think are most beautiful. Um, starting from the, the last verse there, verse 6, again, we have a reference here to Jesus giving himself a ransom for all. But Paul qualifies it by saying to be testified in due time. In other words, that the allness of Jesus' ransom, the, the full universal coverage of that, is not something that's going to be seen all at once, but will be testified as time goes on. The other well, thing that's, yeah. that, that is of interest, uh, in uh, verse 4, where it speaks of God, who will have all men to be saved. Well, the question naturally rises, saved from what? 
the answer that, that I would give, what I think the scriptures teach, is to be saved from endemic death. Endemic death spread unto all men, and it is the endemic death that Jesus has redeemed us from. Uh, he is called in one place a second Adam. So this is this idea of equivalency. But do you notice okay, that can I in verse get... 4? Can, can I make one more point? In verse 4, there's a sequence here that I believe works in the kingdom, but it's a different sequence to, uh, for the gospel age. It says that God will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, the sequence is that you're saved first and then you come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, that makes sense in the millennial kingdom of Jesus, that, as you pointed out, those many millions and billions, perhaps, that died before Jesus uh, came on the scene knew nothing about it. So they're saved from Edenic death, and then they're taught the knowledge of God. That, that's the exact opposite uh, formula for life uh, and blessing during the gospel age, that we come to a knowledge of, of God first, and then that knowledge, that understanding of what Jesus done works uh, to our saving, to our salvation. So the gospel age is that knowledge comes first and then salvation. In the millennial age, it's the saving, salvation from endemic sin, then knowledge. And then, as you said, Brother Joe, uh, the the whole point of the knowledge is so that everybody themselves can exercise faith and they'll be required to make a faithful and obedient choice then. Those that do go on to everlasting life those that do not will be judged. They've been given every opportunity, every mercy, every compassion, and they've still chosen to reject obedience. And will that be as a final test at the end of the thousand-year reign? To hog the time, and I'm not trying to be real quick and short and brusque and rude and everything. It's just that I know that you're here to answer the questions for only a, a, a short, relatively short period of time, and I'd like to be able to converse with you without it being quite as rushed. Uh, I assume Richard has your your phone number. Would it be okay if uh, if I could get it for uh, a- asking you some questions later? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can get. Or you it. might give your email. David. My email, yeah, my email address is. My initials, D-A-S, David Andrew Stein, 1874, at PTD, that's Peter Tom David, PTD.net. And why don't you send me an email, and then I can send you my phone number, and, and we can chat. And that's true for anybody that's listening as well. Right. Will you give that one more time, just a little bit slower? So everybody can write it down. Everybody grab a pencil now if you'd like to do that and write it down a little bit slower, David. All right. Once again, it is D-A-S, it's my initials, David A. Stein, D-A-S-1874 at P-T-D, Peter Tom David, dot net. D-A-S-1874 at ptd.net. Very good. What's the 1874 stand for? Uh, that's the date of the return of our Lord, I believe. I see. Okay. I didn't know. That's one way we can remember that. Thank you very much for doing that. And I'm sure you would appreciate people emailing you, would you not? 
Yes, uh, and if anyone wants to talk, um, I would be happy to provide my my phone number as well. Oh, you want to do it now? I mean, well, I'll tell you what, I will do it now. Okay, uh, sure, Ryan. Okay, uh, excuse me a moment, uh, uh, David. On the yes. on your address on your uh, email, Addy, is that uh, are the letters lowercase? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Okay, yeah, thank you. Case. By the way, my name is Stanley. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Here's my cell phone. This is also my business phone, but uh, I don't have any problem with receiving uh, phone calls. Uh, it is 570-856-4199. Oh, I'll repeat that for you. 570 8564199 Am I right? That is correct. I got it now right. At least I have. Great. Okay. Or you're going to get a lot of phone calls, David. <laughs> well, you know, I'll I'll do what I can. Uh, you know, I'm just one person. You're doing beautifully. I, I, I do have a I do have a very strong feeling of sympathy and compassion for many Jehovah's Witnesses out there. We feel that are, are wrestling with uh, with their consciences and wrestling with what's going on. And, you know, I just wanted to remind everyone that Jehovah God is a very loving and very compassionate God. Hang on to that. Of course, that, that is the most important thing. But you've got to remember, you've got to be a member of the Watchtower in order to be saved. No doubt about that is their name. Uh, thank you, thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Richard. Brother David, this is Kirk. Can you hear me? Yes, yeah, yeah, Kirk. Kirk. Okay, hello, Ed and, and everybody, Larry and Richard. And Brother David, I've enjoyed your story. Uh, could you comment on the Bible student view of what uh, Jehovah God and Christ Jesus has been doing since Pentecost with the church the congregation of God and, and, and the world? Well, the gospel age has been, uh, as looking back to the time when Jesus died, almost 2,000 years, and that's inexplicable to a lot of folks. But what I believe uh, was necessary uh, for that long span of time, at least what explains it, is that the Heavenly Father is looking for a precious few, a little flock, of those that are willing to give everything in their life over to his service. It is a very difficult way. As Jesus said, it is a narrow way and has taken nearly 2,000 years uh, to gather uh, the full number of the church. Uh, there is uh, so many opportunities for compromise, so many opportunities for failing short, for not laying down one's life. Uh, that, that is why it is a little flock. So for the 2,000 years, I think Jesus has just been overseeing the development of the church. And it's also the reason why the Heavenly Father has permitted wickedness and evil during this time, because it is under such adverse conditions that this beautiful choice fruit that will be the little flock, that will all ultimately be duplicates of Jesus in their character, full of love, full of grace, full of compassion and mercy, the duplicates, I might add, of the Heavenly Father himself. And it's taken that long for that group to be uh, assembled in that time. 
All right, David, uh, let me ask you something. When is it, or how do you feel, or how does uh, the Bible students feel, that the end of the church age uh, is realized? Uh, what do you mean by first age? Let me ask that question. The church age. I'm, I'm sorry. The uh, church age. Yeah, the church How age. will we know when the gospel age is over? Well, the church age. Uh, the gospel, you can say the good news of the kingdom. Uh, I uh, more or less uh, have the idea of the congregation being fulfilled, which is the church age uh, mm-hmm. at that time. How, how do you feel or how do you think that uh, that will be fulfilled and how do you know that? Well, I think that uh, that Jesus is waiting for that church to be completed before he begins to exercise full power on the earth and to fully inaugurate the earthly phase of the kingdom. So when the last member of the little flock completes their course, I think it would be uh, very, very obvious on the world scene that and that Jesus' attention, uh, particularly upon the fleshly seed of Abraham, now will begin to come to the fore. My expectation is that the fleshly seed of Abraham, Israel in the flesh today, uh, is going to be a nation that Jesus uses to uh, introduce many of the kingdom uh, principles. I also believe that many of the uh, worthies of, of faith of the past prior to Jesus' time uh, the last me- number or the last member of the ancient worthies, I think, was John the Baptist. These were all consecrated uh, men and women who laid their life down in the service of God, uh, not knowing, uh, at least having a, uh, any idea of what the ransom is all about and what Jesus would do. I think that they are going to uh, receive a resurrection early in that time and come on. To okay, the- for, forgive me for interrupting you. Sure. You. Do you think or feel that uh, these uh, ancient worthies are going to come back uh, before the uh, uh, establishment of God's kingdom? No, I I think that that will be one sign showing that uh, the the last of the spirit-begotten class has finished their course in death and has been resurrected. Okay, how, 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 how will you establish that? How will I establish what? The, that that these uh, ancient worthies are coming back. You you mean that they are going to be resurrected uh, in, in full sight of everyone, so that at that time they will be a uh, a sight to all of mankind? Or, or explain it for us, please. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the Apostle Paul course, starts out defining faith, and then he gives us a series of uh, examples of these ancient worthies. I don't think that this is a complete list, but I think that these are, are individuals that were used powerfully by God and demonstrated their faith uh, by uh, their loyalty and uh, their submission to even uh, experiences that, that caused their death. In verse 35, this is Hebrews 11 once again, we read, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Well, the question that we might ask here is, well, how is their resurrection better? Better than what? 
uh, I think that their resurrection is better than that of the rest of mankind. In yes. that when they are brought back from the grave, they will be brought back as perfect human beings, whereas the rest of mankind will be brought back to walk the highway of holiness to perfection. So that's my understanding of the word uh, better there. And then if you go down to verse 40, uh, Paul says, God having provided some better thing for us. Uh, now he's talking about the church. Well, the church is going to have something better than the ancient worthies. The ancient worthies have a better resurrection, but the church has a better resurrection than that. And he finishes there in verse 40, that they without us, or we might say before us, should not be made perfect. I think that's the scripture that in my mind suggests that the better resurrection of the ancient worthies is a resurrection to human perfection. But the church's resurrection will be a resurrection to the perfect spirit nature, not human nature, but spirit nature, to partake of the very same nature that uh, Jesus had when he was resurrected from the grave. Very so good, David. I'm going to interrupt here because of time. I've got one more final question for you, if you would please answer me. And you okay. said that the witnesses could not answer certain questions. So I want to ask you one that I've asked many Bible students, and I never have got a satisfactory answer yet. Okay, well, I'll try my best, Brother Richard. <laughs> I'm sorry? I'll try my best. Very good, okay. Matthew 28, 19, 20. Yahshua said to his apostles that he would be with them all the while to the time of the end in preaching, in their preaching work. So he's invisibly present with them from the time he died and was resurrected until the end of the world, if we understand it correctly. Now, how was Christ any more invisibly present with them in 1873 than he was in 1875, let's say? So how could his second coming be an invisible presence if he's already present with them for 2,000 years? All right, great, great question. Um, I take that, that scripture of Jesus' promise, and, and this is Matthew 28, 20, correct? For 19, 20, yes. All right. I, and lo, I am with you always until the end of the world. Uh, in another place, Jesus, uh, we're told that where two or three are gathered in his name, that he would be present there with them. I think that Jesus' uh, presence with the church uh, is, a, is a presence that uh, is with them in the sense that he is aware of what's going on, he is uh, ever available to us as our Redeemer and our King, but that his residence is still in heaven. Uh, he's, been, he's been sat there uh, with the Heavenly Father, but that doesn't preclude him from having a presence with us at any time. You know, if we, if we look at it this way, for example, and all I'm giving you, Brother Richard, is my understanding of the matter, which may be imperfect, but it's how I've come to understand this. Um, at any moment uh, throughout the world, there are many, many, maybe millions, maybe hundreds of billions of Christians that are gathered two or more together. And Jesus says, lo, I am, I am with you. If there's two or more gathered in my name, I am with you. Uh, well, we don't necessarily think that, uh, that he is physically present in all those places. 
Now, I'll be the first to admit that I don't understand what the full capabilities of a spirit creature are. Maybe he is, but the idea appeals to me that he is rather present in the sense that uh, he is aware of what's going on, he is aware of all the words that are spoken, and he is uh, there to bless the efforts that are done. But his residence remains in heaven. Again, not that it doesn't mean that he can't remove his residence from heaven. We have at least one scriptural example where he made a personal appearance to someone, and he was right there, and that's the Apostle Paul on the road to Emmaus. Uh, he was the of, of Jesus, so he clearly was on the earth at that point. Uh, the the idea of the second presence, you know, where Jesus is speaking about uh, his uh, invisible presence in Matthew chapter 24, uh, to me, this is a matter of residence, that he transfers his residence, if you will, his throne to the earth, and now begins a, uh, a level of, of, uh, of action uh, in an entirely different manner uh, than it was during the Gospel Age. That's my conception of it. That's the best I can, uh, that I can do that, to, to make sense of those scriptures. Brother Mack said something as written in the book, Faith on the March. He said... Brother Russell, when you go into your study at 10 o'clock and don't want to be disturbed until 3 o'clock, what do you do? You talk with Jesus then. He believes that Jesus was here on earth, if I understand it rightly. And he was talking to him when he, at certain appointed times. Is that the correct understanding of Brother Max's question to him? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you're asking me if that's a, is, is that a correct understanding of the question? Right. Did Brother Mac have the question right to Brother Russell? What was the question? When you go into your study every day at 10 a.m. and don't want to be disturbed until 3 p.m., do you talk with Jesus in there? Of course he did. Voice in there. You of actually course. hear his voice in there. Is that where you get your knowledge of the Bible? So you can voice. write all these articles. Not his voice, but he talked with Jesus every day. I do too. Don't you? And people have always done that. So how is his presence any different in 1876 than it was in 1873? It isn't. The point is, is that uh, uh, it was his interpretation. Who's the interpretation? I can make a comment on that. I would too. A minute, uh, Russell, uh, uh, I think I'm right on this. On this invisible presence, without getting in a long uh, uh, discussion here, uh, the basic difference would be that he would be present with the church, supporting the church, knowing what's going on, hand hand picking, of course God does the calling and all that uh, all through these years. In eighteen seventy four the spiritual phase of the kingdom started. So uh the deal is is that this invisible presence took on a new meaning uh in the sense of uh the kingdom being set up in heaven in eighteen seventy four. We can all uh, always, uh, within ourselves, understand those same things and get uh, uh, different uh, ideas and different uh, understandings of it. So, you know, A woman's voice. You want to ask your question? David, I will pray soon. 
Yeah, if I can, if I can throw one one more scripture into this uh, to again to illustrate the my conception of it in First Thessalonians chapter four and uh, starting in verse fifteen. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So uh, this suggests a movement of the Lord from heaven, where his residence is, uh, to the air, where he takes up residence at his return. And his return, I believe, is invisible. While he was in heaven, it did not mean that he did not have a presence with us in the sense of, of the church of being able to communicate and see and hear and everything that's going on. Uh, Jesus made that very clear. He didn't want the church ever to feel that they were isolated or they didn't have the Lord with them. But he was still at his residence in heaven. Uh, this scripture, at least to me, seems to teach that that residence moves from heaven to the air, to the vicinity of the earth. And that's what, to me, marks the invisible return, that, that change of residence. The, the sensibilities and the communication and the hearing of prayer all of that remains through all this time. But there's a, a, a closer uh, approximation of the Lord uh, in, in where he's actually located during the time of his second presence. Very good answer. No uh, doubt about that. Wait a minute, I need to break in here. I think David's got to leave here. There was a lady. Her voice said something. Go ahead again. Is that a, I can't say your name. I know your name, but I can't say it right now. All right, there, there, there's no doubt about that, uh, Brother. Jacqueline. Jacqueline, yeah, Jacqueline. Right, Jacqueline, are you there? Okay, I guess you're not there. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ed, or you got to go now, uh, David. All right, there's no doubt about what you said, uh, Brother David. The idea, though, is, is how can you pinpoint when that happened? Uh, Russell said that it would happen at a certain time. Rutherford said it happened at a different time. Norris said it happened, I mean, uh, not Norris, but uh, France. France said it happened at a different time. So how do we know when it happened? The only, yeah, thing, that we can, the, the only thing we can determine is how it happened, is how, uh, what happened with, with Israel at this time, in our time period, after Russell died. And, yeah. uh, of course, Russell didn't have that uh, idea or understanding as to what, what, what has happened since 1948. Yeah, if I can make a, a, a brief comment on that, uh, you put your finger on uh, uh, very precisely on, on one of the areas uh, where, where the discussion and the study of this subject has to resolve. Um, when I when I talk with folks about it and introduce the the whole concept, I start with the idea of an invisible presence. I completely ignore the time aspect. I try to establish from the scriptures that the return would be invisible, and and don't even talk about the time at first, but to establish that. 
and uh, if you accept that premise uh, and feel that it's a biblical one, then the next step you take is Jesus answered the question, you know, how would we know that you're present? Well, there would be science that that would be it. And exactly. I think the science, exactly. the science that we see in the world today are, are very manifest evidence of our Lord's presence and our Lord's activity, what's going on. Or do, now, do, do, do accept the idea that uh, uh, the return of natural Israel to Palestine is part of that. Oh, uh, absolutely, I do. Absolutely, okay. I do. Okay. All right. So well, then, then, then the we, study of chronology. Then we totally now, agree, brother. <laughs> yeah. Now the study of chronology, you know, that that now is the next aspect of it. Um, I mean, you can believe in a second presence of our Lord without believing that it happened in 1874 or 1914 or 1948. Yeah, that's all problematical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, when you start to look at chronology, um, and, and I, I appreciate. But 1914, very much. Uh, I mean, 1948 is not problematical. It's certainly something you can point to, but I mean, there's something that you can point to even in 1878 with respect to the Jews and the establishment of Pentateuch. I think uh, that's, that's, that's when the, that's when the Rothschilds started buying land in Israel. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and I, I think that's part of the sign of Jesus' presence. So that brings us at least back to 1878, if you accept that as, as oh, one of the signs. I understand that, but... Oh, I know him, and hold on a minute now. David, do you need to go? I mean, we can talk for another hour, five hours if you want to. I'm game. Yeah, but I yeah, need I, to hold you to a time limit in case you need to go. Like you said Forgive me, yeah, for, no, no, forgive me for you know trying to complicate this thing. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, not, not at all. These are all wonderful questions, and, and it's clear that uh, a study of these things is, is an extended study. It's not something that you can lay out um, uh, in exactly. sometimes even even in brief in a phone call like this. And uh, again, as I said earlier. Each one has to be convinced in his, in his own heart. I mean, I, I believe that our Lord returned in 1878 invisibly. Um, I, I don't beat uh, anybody over the head trying to convince them of it. I'm quite happy to give you the reasons why I believe it, and some of them take a lot of time to go through. Uh, but uh, if someone doesn't see the same uh, as I do, well, that, that's fine. God bless them. Uh, they're still my brethren in Christ, and uh, I still will have a dialogue with them. It's quite a different attitude when the witnesses that they say, "Well, you have to see it just like I do." I don't exactly. see it that way. I Great. All right, let's go. Do you want to go for another hour, half an hour, or what? We'd be very happy to have you on here. Oh, Brother Richard, you're very kind, and I, and I thank you for your sensitivity. I think I'm, I'm going to have to wrap it up here uh, very, very quickly. I'm afraid. And we can contact you by phone, otherwise, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, or email. I mean. Yeah, yeah, I would say use email. I'm usually pretty prompt about uh, getting back to email. Uh, as far as phone calls, uh, please, anybody who wants to call me, do call me. Uh, but remembering that I'm a finite person, I'm not always able to give everybody the time they would like to have. But what time have is the best time to call you when you're the least busy? <laughs> I don't know that there is such a time. I um, yeah, I mean, I, I travel a lot on business, and, and so I'm frequently out of the home. I, I would say that, uh, just, yeah, just give me a call, and if it's inconvenient, I'll tell you that, and we'll set up something else. Very good, brother. David, beautiful Bible students by getting on the computer and looking up the Bible students on the computer. I missed the first part of that question. I'm sorry. People can get a hold of the Bible students, those that want to, to get more information 
by getting on the computer and looking at the uh, like the Chicago Bible Students website. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would highly recommend uh, the site uh, uh, friendsofjehovahswitnesses.com. Uh, this is a site that uh, has been put up by some uh, very dear friends of mine in the Chicago area. And it is especially intended for Jehovah's Witnesses, ex-witnesses uh, that are that are uh, um, undergoing a lot of uh, hardship uh, because of uh, of the pressure of the society. Um, but Friends of Jehovah's Witnesses is a wonderful site, and uh, I, I think you can probably get a hold of me through that site too if you go on their blog and whatnot. Anything directed there uh, will be directed to me. How many Jehovah's Witnesses that you know, like yourself? Have joined with the Bible students. Would you get hundred thousand, five thousand? If you had a rough guess. Well, you know, I would I would say maybe a hundred. I I I meet the people. Two or three, four. I don't find out till much later that they used to be Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, maybe about a hundred. Thank you very much for that. Hey, we've enjoyed having you on. We can run you. Into the ground if you want to get that. I mean, this well, program stays on the air for another six, eight hours, believe it or not. In fact, I have two more hosts when I'm dead tired. Jacqueline and Art Sherwood are going to be staying over from now on until I'm dead. Until I'm dead, then they'll take it over and they'll go to maybe even six, seven tomorrow morning. East Coast uh, time, yeah. maybe that long. Or if they're uh, gone, People will talk and talk and talk more and more on. If it wasn't for Richard, we would be able to thank you very much, Richard. I mean, uh, uh, David, thank you very much. You betcha. Thank you so very much. I'd like to have you on again one of these days if it's okay, David. Yeah, I would like to do that. I, again, I thank you for the opportunity. And, and uh, I, I, my, my sole goal, and I prayed about this before we came on, is that I want to praise our Heavenly Father. Jehovah is such a wonderful God, uh, so kind. And his son Jesus uh, laying his life down. I just hope that uh, my experiences and the thoughts that I've shared uh, are an encouragement and would help all of those that were listening just to love our God a little bit more. That really is, uh, has been my uh, motive all through. And with that, again, I thank you uh, very much, Brother Richard, for the opportunity and uh, do pray that it would be a blessing to everyone. And the program is recorded, so after Wednesday, you can hear it. On this network, not long network. Okay, thank you very kindly. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. Yes, he said goodbye, everybody. I hear him hang up. So now, what?